Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Einstein Agogo. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein A Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for joining us for an hour of science on this very fine Melbourne Sunday. In the studio with me is Dr. Susie. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. Good to see you. Good to see you. You got a small chair there. You seem a bit. I know. I seem like a dwarf today. <laughs> you're, don't down, I? You're, down, you're down low today. You're down low. It's okay. I'm grounded. You yeah. Know. I always, you know, pump my seat up a little bit. It makes me feel better. Uh, Dr. Laura, good morning. Morning. I pumped up my seat. So I'm kind of feeling a bit, you know. Taller than normal. Yeah. Taller than normal. Yeah. <laughs> just establishing ranks here. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, well, you know, I've got a lot of buttons to reach and, you know, I need, yeah, I need to be able to do Whatever that. makes you feel good. Yeah. It works. Uh, folks, we've got uh, three amazing guests uh, coming into the studio today and then we're going to throw some news at you towards the end of the show. But first up, we have Dr. Marianne Coleman. Marianne is from the Department of Optometry and Vision Sciences at the University of Melbourne and part of the National Vision Research Institute at the Australian College of Optometry. Marianne, welcome to Triple R. Thank you very much, Shane. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. Now, you and I have been talking about this interview, I think, for a little while now because we're just coming to the end of um, Dementia Week, or what's the f- official name? Yeah, Dementia Action Week. De- action. See, I missed the most important part. <laughs> and what, what's been happening as a result of um, this Action Week? I mean, what, what have been some of the activities? Um, so the theme of Dementia Action Week this year, it happens every year, mm-hmm. um, is Act Now for a Dementia-Friendly Future. Right. So uh, there's been all sorts of stuff happening on social media and out in the community. Uh, so, uh, for example, there was the um, information forum about dementia in Box Hill yep. um, at their town hall um, mm-hmm. a couple of days ago. So um, as well as it being Dementia Action Week, it was also World Alzheimer's Day on Thursday. So there's a lot of um, these kind of awareness raising initiatives that are all coming together. But because the focus is so much on um, this particular year is about like, what can we do to make our communities more dementia friendly? Mm. There have been a lot more kind of community um, activities. So um, yeah, the information forum was, you know, there's somebody from Dementia Australia, which is like the big sort of dementia organization here in Australia, um, was providing information. And then we had a whole bunch of scientists that were presenting and also we had um, dementia advocates talking about their lived right. experience of dementia as well yeah such an important part that last part i think we we're seeing more and more of that which is great now you work in an area which i think you know the second we start talking about this people are going to go oh yeah why you know why aren't we doing more of this but you um work in the area of essentially the optometry elements of dementia and what people with dementia encounter and how we can make that better with regards to their eye health. So just give us a bit of a rundown on what, what's happening there in terms of uh, are patients with dementia not accessing eye health in, in the way they should? Uh, so that's essentially what it comes down to, yeah. So um, people living with dementia, they're not at any greater risk of experiencing sight-threatening mm-hmm. eye diseases compared to um, older adults without dementia, for yep. example, but they are at greater risk of experiencing vision impairment as a result of those conditions. And that is related to the fact that they are less likely to go and see an optometrist for an eye test, they're less likely to see an ophthalmologist for various different types of treatments that are available for um, these kind of age-related eye diseases. So um, there's a lot of different factors in the mix there, but um, being able to go and have your eyes tested at regular intervals is really important for um, early detection of these um, sight-threatening eye conditions. And obviously, as we get older, our chances of experiencing one of these conditions, such as cataract, for example, cataract happens to pretty much all of us at some point later on in our lives. Um, And there's a lot of people out there who are living with dementia and have untreated cataract, for example. Mm, And so that can be quite a significant source of poor vision. Um, But also, it's not just about sight-threatening eye diseases as well, because when you go and have an eye test done, um, they check the health of the back of the eye, but they also make sure that your glasses are up to date. And there's actually like a big chunk of... Um, vision impairment experienced by people living with dementia that can be addressed just by updating spectacles. Right. It's such a, there's so many overlaps here, isn't there, in terms of what's going on? Because I, I assume that part of this is the systems there for going and getting these things done are not dementia patient friendly. But I'm assuming part of it at certain levels of dementia are also the patients themselves not sort of 
um, putting forward the ideas that they're having problems with their site. Is, is, it, is it all of those at the same time? It can be quite a lot of different factors, yeah. So um, because the way that we see is very subjective. Mm. And so um, for people living with dementia, if they also have communication difficulties, for example, um, or they ha might have a cognitive impairment, um, these things can kind of combine together to make it quite difficult to say there's something wrong with how I see. Um, even for those of, those of us without dementia, when we go to the optometrist and we you know, feel like our glasses are not quite doing the job anymore, um, it can be quite difficult to yeah. actually express that to the optometrist. And there are actually some forms of dementia that are... Um, associated with quite profound um, visual processing difficulties such as co uh, posterior cortical atrophy, for example. Mm. That's a mm. type of dementia where um, all of the sort of usual dementia pathology happens in the part of the brain that's responsible for vision, the the, the visual yep. cortex at the back of the brain. Um, and so, you know, for those people, they can have all sorts of weird and wonderful things going on. But then when they actually go and have that eye test done, um, that shows that the actual eyes themselves are healthy because it's not the eyes you know the sort of physical organs themselves that are the issue it's the actual bit yeah. of the brain that's actually processing all of that visual information yeah it, it's, it's fascinating isn't it we, we had a artist in residence from monash um who has significant visual impairment i, th I think actually is legally blind and when she was in earlier in the year, she described her visual experience to us. And I'd never heard anyone describe it in such detail. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, how many people can do that when they go and see uh, an eye specialist? Like, yeah. that, like the, the level of clarity that she put around her experience was, was something that we were all just quite shocked at. Like, wow, you know, this is, we, we kind of had just a moment where we could sort of imagine her world. And I think the ability to do that, especially if you had dementia, just, you know, goes, goes down so substantially. Even, even people without dementia being able to describe that, it's not something you can easily do um, all the time. And, and thankfully, optometrists are well trained to pull that information out. So mm -hmm. what does that mean in terms of training and so forth? What are you doing to assist with this? Because this is obviously something where there's a bit of a gap at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. So um, this is something that um, actually, when we approached people living with dementia and carers to invite them to be um, interviewed for our research study, um, you know, sometimes the question we got back was, well, what's dementia got to do with the eyes? Um, and so um, some of the carers that we spoke to, they sort of were thinking, well, the eye test, it's something you do all the time right you do it regularly mm. why would it be different because of having dementia but actually um the cognitive impairment and the communication difficulties that can happen in dementia and obviously no two people with dementia are the same once you've met one person with dementia you've met one person with dementia and so th these can be very different experiences for different people yep. um and so you know the impact of that upon the eye test um can vary quite substantially from one person to the next. So um, essentially, one of the big things that can impact upon the eye test experience for people living with dementia is cognitive fatigue. So even just the act of listening to the instructions from the optometrist or being asked a whole bunch of questions, especially the whole, which one's better, one or two, <laughs> over and over and over again. We all hate that, right? We do. It, exactly, exactly. But for people living with dementia, actually having to make those subjective yeah. judgments is very, very tiring. And so part of what we call dementia-friendly eye care is about making adaptations to the way that we as clinicians do that testing um, to accommodate this variety of different aspects of living with dementia, so much of it is about the way that we communicate um, but also mm. the way that we do our testing because there's lots of different tests yep. as part of the routine eye test it's not just hey can you read the eye chart it's yeah. also how's the health at the back of the eye can you come and sit and have your photo taken of the back of the eye and do this and do that right so there's yeah. a lot of kind of up down lots of questions and so it's about how can we change the way we do things to be more considerate of those difficulties that people living with dementia mm. may experience. I, I even think of, like, you know, my, my good friend Laura Downey, who's my optometrist, you know, the professor in, in your very department. Yes. Um, you know, she seemed to take great delight in giving me those pupil dilating drops. Mm -hmm. You know, so after you've had those and you walk out into the street, every white car is your enemy. You know, it's like, it's, but it's a, such a difficult experience. Yes. And I can't imagine, you know, explaining what is coming to someone with dementia even something simple like that we all accept it's a relatively easy part of those tests but you know making sure that people know what's coming like that could be very disturbing for individuals 
Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's that that communication element is very important because um, for some people, as dementia progresses, they can become very um, conscious of people invading their personal space. Mm. And so there are quite a lot of different aspects of the eye examination that do involve getting quite close, like to put a drop in or to have a look at the back of the eye. Um, All of these things can be quite up close and personal. Mm. And uh, for people living with dementia, that can actually um, be a trigger for what we call responsive behaviours, which is where, you know, they, they, they're not happy about something in their environment and they just sort of think, okay, no, I'm not okay with this. But they don't necessarily know how to kind of communicate that. They can struggle with that. And so they might react by changing their behavior, for example. Yep. So we do need to be mindful of yep. that. So this, I mean, it sounds like all optometrists coming through education programs now should be given this training. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And uh, the dementia advocates supporting our project, they also felt, feel that that's very important. So mm. we're developing a training course for... Yep optometrists that are already qualified to um, upskill them in uh, adapting their testing to accommodate different types, different levels of dementia. But you're absolutely right, Shane. It is something that we are um, currently looking at embedding into the uh, optometry training courses as well. Yes. And if I'm a carer or a person with dementia and I'm seeking an optometrist and I want to make sure that, you know, they know Marianne and they've you know, being trained up or they have some some sort of awareness, like how do I go about, how, where do I start? Yeah, and that can definitely be quite difficult. So uh, when we did uh, our interviews with people living with dementia and carers for mm. our research project, they told us that they wanted to be seen by an optometrist who knew something about dementia. Right. So uh, we're, our training course is going to be launching later this year. Um, but even before that, uh, you can actually now search for a dementia-friendly optometrist online. So mm-hmm. um, there's a website called Good Vision for Life. You can search that on Google. And at the very top of the website, there is a function that lets you search for optometrists with different specialties. And uh, as of um, about a month ago, um, you can now look for a dementia-friendly optometrist on that list. Wow. So it's a fairly new thing. And we're currently suggesting to people, if you feel confident already about testing people living with dementia then you can tell the world um, by updating your profile on that website so at this present moment in time there are not lots and lots of dementia friendly optometrists that are findable across australia um, so there's not that many people that come up when you search for that option but once our training course is live and we get the word out we're hoping that it'll become easier and easier to find an optometrist who knows dementia in your local area yeah. Well, look, great work, Marianne. This is such something I think a lot of people won't have thought about. I'm sure there's similar problems with dentistry and other areas as well. You know, healthcare is difficult to navigate for most of us. Um, I'm sure it's even harder as soon as you have any sort of, um, you know, constraints with regards to the, the way you communicate being the key element here. So thanks so much for chatting to us about this on Einstein and Gogo. Thank you very much. It's a great opportunity. Thank you. Folks, that was Dr. Marianne Coleman from the University of Melbourne. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we will be speaking to an old friend from Zoos Victoria. Triple R. Now, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo. A big thank you to a few people who have subscribed to the station while we were playing that track. Uh, Colleen McGuire from Frankston South says, uh, uh, it's a message to off the record saying, love the work, Brian. Thank you, Colleen. Very much appreciate that. We've got Nikki Zarella from South Melbourne, a subscription to Astral Glamour and a donation of $15. Thank you, Nikki. And Tasha Whitelaw from Northcote has also uh, renewed her subscription to the station with a donation of $15. Thank you all for supporting Triple R. Now then, in the studio is our second guest for today. She's a return customer. Isn't that you like? Is that the phrase we're using? No, we're not going to say that ever again. <laughs> Dr. Marissa Parrott is the senior conservation biologist for wildlife conservation and science at Zoos Victoria. Marissa, great to have you back in the studio. Thank you so much. It's brilliant to be back. It's wonderful to see everyone here. Yeah, it's been so long. I think we're probably talking a good five years. And the last time you were in Triple R, you were running your own show over the summer break. I was, I was. We ran the Animal Collective talking about all things animals and conservation and it was just so fabulous to share what we're doing at the zoos and that was with the RSPCA as well, which was brilliant. Uh, Cool stuff. Now, you are doing some of the amazing work there. You've got a new title though. This has just come out this week, yeah? Your, Your new role? 
It has, it has. So I've been the reproductive biologist at Zoos Victoria since about 2009, but I have had a title upgrade to senior conservation biologist. So I have my dream job and a pretty dream title there as well, which is That's great. Cruel. That reproductive biologist, does that mean you're helping the animals do stuff? It certainly does. Yeah. It does. Yeah, you... Very much focused on reproduction and captive breeding and working with our beautiful animals. I still do that, but so much more now. Yeah. Now, uh, I think one of the things we talked about last time, of course, is the mountain pygmy possums. Uh, give us an update. How are things going there? Because my recollection is they're on two different mountains, separated, two different populations. Are they still going well? What What's the scenario? The, the mountain pygmy possums are one of the most beautiful animals, but unfortunately they are critically endangered. So they're found in our highest peaks in Australia on Mount Kosciuszko, on Mount Buller and the Bogong High Plains, which right. includes Mount Hotham and Falls Creek. Lots of those places people love to go to to ski, yep. but unfortunately places that have a lot of threats. And so there are really only around 2,000 mountain pygmy oh, possums wow. left in the world, including our breeding program and research program we have at Hillsville Sanctuary. So there are species that we can all work together to help because they're just amazing. Yeah. Now, now, my vague recollection is that as the sort of climate was shifting and things were changing, they were kind of heading further and further up. And I mean, as we know, you can only head so far up the mountain and then you run out of space. Is, is, that, is that right, if I remembered that correctly? You have. They used to be found at much lower elevations. And from the fossil record, they were down in those forested areas. Right. But as other species have come across Australia, as the climate mm. has changed, they've been moving up. They now have nowhere else to move to. They're yeah. at the very top peaks above about 1,200 metres. And so we really need to take care of them where they are, out in the boulder fields of the snowy country. They hibernate mm. every year over the winter. So for about five to seven months, they are asleep under the snow. And that's a really important part of their biology. So we need to protect the habitat and protect the possums so they can keep doing that. I've got to ask you about hibernation. How does that work? So what do they sort of feed up, you know, before? Is it like what I've seen on television with the bears? It is. We we call them both Australia's biggest losers and gainers because <laughs> they, they have the dream job, I think. Over autumn, they can put on as much weight as possible, right. up to about 80 grams. It's about the size of a tennis ball. And then over their winter hibernation, they can drop their body temperature down to about two and a half degrees. Whoa. They shut down their metabolism by about 98%. And they sleep through the winter and they lose half of their body weight. So when they wake up in spring, they're ready to breed. They're about 40 grams or so. They're bikini ready for summer without even trying. It's fabulous. <laughs> That's fantastic. So when you say they like put on the size of a tennis ball, like I've seen them in Hillsville in the sanctuary, they are tiny. So they're getting like bigger as their own body weight. Is that what they're doing? They are. They double their body weight. That is so ridiculous. in spring, they're around 35 to 40 grams, but they can get up to 80 grams prior to hibernation. So, cool. so they're happy little butterballs when they head into their hibernation period over the winter, but they need to have adequate food to be able to do that. Mm. And that's something that we're keeping a very close eye on as part of the mountain pygmy possum recovery team. Now, my understanding is that is where the bogon moth comes into the story, yes? It is the main food source and the key food source over that spring period when they wake up and they're really hungry is the migratory bogong moth. And that is an amazing species in its own right. The bogong moths hatch and grow up in areas around southern Queensland, across New South Wales, the ACT and Victoria, and then they migrate up to a 1,000 kilometres up to the alpine zone every year and then back again in autumn. Now, these aren't big moths. They're only around an inch long, about two and a half centimetres, sort of the top of your thumb, if mm -hmm. you want to visualise that. They actually weigh less than a tic-tac, 0.3 grams. <laughs> oh, wow. so, uh, so hang on. Metric units. Pygmy possum's got to eat a lot of those. Yeah, I'm visualising yeah. the tennis ball and the weight of that sort yeah. of 40 tic gram and then the tic-tacs. That's a lot of moths. It's a lot of moths. Yeah. And that used to be possible. They used to migrate in numbers around 4 billion. Whoa. Not wow. million, but Oof. billion every year. People would talk about seeing swarms of bogong moths come over and they would block out the light of the stars and the moon. And then in 2017 and 2018, following the catastrophic drought across southeast Australia, 
the numbers collapsed by an estimated 99.5%. Whoa, that's extraordinary. It was shocking. They were almost undetectable. And that, of course, is a major issue for the Bogong moths themselves that used to be so numerous and were added to the endangered species list on the IUCN back in 2021. But it's also a major issue for all of the animals in the Alps because that influx of Mm. billions of bogong moths was the second largest influx of nutrients into the alpine zone after the sun. They're crucial for the environment and for the possums. That's extraordinary. So my sort of vague understanding of this is that most insect species can rebound fairly quickly um, because of their reproductive cycles are fairly fast. I mean, are the moths not in that regime? Like how how long will a rebound take for presumably these sorts of, you know, certain environmental catastrophes have happened at various times in our history and they've obviously survived that. So how are they, how are they tracking since, you know, a few years back? We've never seen a collapse like this, but as mm. you said, invertebrates are pretty amazing. Each female bogong moth can lay around 2,000 eggs. And so they hopefully can bounce back quite quickly. The numbers were better last year, which is fantastic, but nothing near what they used to be. And we know that it's just been called to have another Mm. El Nino cycle coming up, which means warmer and drier. And with the other issues they're facing, like changed agricultural practices, not enough food for the little moths, flooding, they do live underground as caterpillars, Mm. and the use of things like insecticides and outdoor lighting, there are a lot of problems facing these little moths, so we have to do everything we can to help them and help the possums too. What we need is a moth tracker. That's such a good idea, Shane. <laughs> Heard it first here, folks. No. <laughs> you, you, you've been creating this, so tell us all about the moth tracker. We need to know much more about our beautiful bogong moths to help them and the possums. So back in 2019, Zoos Victoria came up with Moth Tracker, a citizen science website where you can take a photograph of a bogong moth or what you think might be a moth, submit it to the website, We will verify the bogong moth for you to make sure it's the right species and add it to an interactive map. And this means that we can map things like the migration, the timing, the trends across years to learn more about how we can help the bogong moths rebound and get those Hmm. numbers back. And you've been doing this, Susie. I have. We went to Mount Bogong not too long ago, earlier this year, and I actually seen this at Melbourne Zoo before. So there's like a, I think, a immersive showroom or something where you like describe this i think and uh, again in the end the nerd that i am i uh, downloaded this obviously and then we went to mount bogong because my husband wanted to hike the highest mountain around and so we did that (laughs) (laughs) and i was like hey actually that name sounds familiar let's do that and we actually found some and uh, submitted some pictures that was real it's really easy so i highly recommend people doing that and just on the note of you know they're literally like tiny moths for a European, they're really big. <laughs> <laughs> so I wasn't expecting them to be that big. Yeah. So like they are this, the size of the top of your thumb, but like for Europe, you know, oh, they'll Europe still standards. Your ba- they'll still your baby. <laughs> yeah, so, like yeah. They're, they but, are quite big. So Yeah, that's what happened with the whole child thing. It wasn't a dingo, it was a moth. Um, <laughs> people don't want to talk about it, but they're, they're big. Uh, and in terms of the, the, so the corresponding pygmy possum um, population, did you see a drop there as, or, you know, the impact of the, the reduction, that massive reduction in food supply? We did. It was really quite devastating for everyone. As part of the Mountain Pygmy Possum Recovery Team, we looked into this a lot and mm. had a lot of extra monitoring because one of the key scientists out there saw that across all the monitored Mountain Pygmy Possum populations back in 2017 and 2018, around half of all of the females lost all of their young. Wow. And so we had this loss of baby possums in the pouches. It, the worst population, uh, which is also the biggest population of possums, it was 95% of females lost all of their litters of babies. Oh, wow. And it's devastating to see. We did pathology of these tiny little bodies at Healesville Sanctuary with our vet department. Uh, we'd been able to collect up animals mm. that had passed. And there was no damage there was no virus or bacteria or disease they simply starved Starved. to death yeah god that's shocking is it so marissa just sort of before we let you go uh, you know we we know what's coming you know we we know there are issues with regards to snow lines we know there are issues with regards to food supply and so forth so what at zoos victoria are you doing to sort of i suppose 
prepare us for this? I mean, we, we have to expect that these populations are going to go lower and lower as, as time goes on. We're working very closely with the recovery team, with scientists out in the field, and there are a number of things that we're doing, including developing bogong bikis, which is a supplementary food that mimics the macro and micronutrients in the bogong moths. Uh, So that's been a really amazing program over the last few years. And thankfully, the food was available after the Black Summer Trials and Try uh, Black Summer Fires, sorry. Yep. It was trialled, it was safe, it was effective, and it's been used to save those possums after the fires. But we also have a research program. We're working with revegetation, with partners like Falls Creek out in the field to have more food. And, of course, we have Moth Tracker so that we can track what's happening with these moths. And, again, everyone can do this in their own lives mm. to help the bogong moths and the mountain pygmy possums by going to the Moth Tracker website. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. And look, you know, you've done such a magnificent job as an organisation with the Lord Howe Stick Insect. I got that right, didn't I? And and with the Tasmanian Devil as well. You know, I mean, these are these are populations that would have been pretty much gone had the arc populations not been put in place, right? For many of the species, eastern barred bandicoots, mm. helmeted honey eaters, and others, we often are the the last point between extinction and survival yeah. and for many of the frogs like bore frogs we actually have more at melbourne zoo than out right. in the wild so the important thing is getting them back out in the wild safe where they belong that's our main focus but in the meantime there are really important yep. things we can do with our insurance programs and our research to make sure they have a really great future and we have a future rich in wildlife too yep sounds great Dr. Marissa Parrott, thank you so much for coming back in. Hopefully we'll see you again sooner than the last time, which was five years ago <laughs> or more. Um, and congratulations on your new role there. It's, it's great to see you doing so well. Thank you so much. I look forward to coming back soon. Excellent. Folks, uh, Dr. Marissa Parrott there, the Senior Conservation Biologist at Zoos Victoria. We're going to take a break and we'll be back in a moment with our third guest. Triple R. Welcome back, folks. You are listening to Triple R. And I just want a big shout out there to a couple of people who've subscribed. We have Dave Longmuir from Essendon. Dave, you legend, passionate subscription to Einstein and Gogo. That's wild. Uh, thanks, buddy. Really appreciate that. We also have Sarah Best. That might be the Sarah Best who comes on our show. Um, renewing to Einstein and Gogo and a donation on top of that of $50. And it says Coburg North. So now it's Sarah Best. Dr. Sarah Best, thank you very much. Thank you to everyone who's subscribing to the station. We do appreciate that. In the studio with us now is Dr. Ellen Cottingham from the University of Melbourne. Ellen is a postdoctoral research fellow there. Ellen, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Great to be in Triple R studio. It's great to have you. Uh, now, your work, it's such a segue from our last guest from Zoos Victoria because you work on um, the problem of invasive species in Australia. Uh, give us a bit of a rundown on what we're talking about there. Are we, are we talking about weeds, uh, cane toads? Cats or just us? All of the above. <laughs> All of the above. Uh, we, we have a massive invasive species problem here in Australia. Weeds, vertebrates, as you mentioned, some of the cane toads, car, yep. rabbits, foxes, cats, they're the vertebrates. Uh, some, as you said, would also argue humans, yeah. good pest. Um, I work on vertebrates, so yep. that means I work on uh, cane toads, carp, foxes, rabbits, cats. Uh, we're looking at deer. Um, we've got quite a list going at yeah. the moment. And we've got camels and all sorts of stuff. I, I was like, do we have camel? Like someone said to me, there's a, lot of, there's a camel problem in Australia. I'm like, really? Not only do we have camels, uh, we actually now have more camels from this particular species of camel that came to Australia than yeah. in its original location that it came from. Oh. They've just done so incredibly well here in Australia that now they're looking at even exporting them back to their original lands. My- <laughs> <laughs> Where did they come from? Um, they came across, I believe, um, during construction of the Garn, the train. Oh, And wow. they helped with, um, you know, because it's very arid and it's, it's desert areas. Horses don't do particularly well. And so camels were brought in as an alternative. But camels have done just incredibly well. I, I find this fascinating, though. Like, it kind of, I, I start thinking about the ark, you know, like, and <laughs> yes. two by two. Yeah. And I think, how many camels did they have to create a viable population? I don't know what the original numbers were. Like, presumably, it's not a few two. hundred. Actually, it no. was a few hundred. A few hundred. Yeah. Wow. 
Yeah, but it's it's a good point though because even you know we ha- I'm not sure how many million billion rabbits we have now, but we yeah. started only with a you know a few dozen, um, and they've gone on to. Well, they breed like rabbits. They do breed very like rabbits. There you go. I had to put there. that in there. <laughs> uh, and in terms of like what what defines an invasive species? I mean, I, I you know at one point many of the continents were all connected, you know, and we have similarities, and you know we have birds coming here all the time, migratory birds and so forth. So what what is the sort of definition of of an invasive species? Does it have to be damaging? Like what does that mean? Not necessarily. Um, it has to be an animal that is outside of its normal range. But as you sort of alluded to, this is, you know, sometimes up for debate. So, for example, yeah. kookaburras, native species on mainland Australia, yep. not a native species in Tasmania. They're really? actually considered, they're actually not, you know, native to Tasmania. So when we talk about invasive species, they're normally in the context of animals that have profound impacts on things like the environment, agriculture, mm. uh, health, human health or agricultural health. Uh, they're the sort of the main caveats, I suppose. Then uh, the other term you'll often hear is pest. And pest mm. is a lot more sort of in the eye of the beholder a yep. little bit because some people would say in some areas, kangaroos are a pest, but right. they're not invasive. They're yep. an natural you know native species yeah interesting so that's yep. fascinating that nuance i think um obviously for policy making that's you know really important really to, to get that right now in in your case though, i mean you're, you're using some pretty sophisticated technologies you're not you're not out there with a golf club for the cane toads right no. i mean so tell us a bit about the sort of immunocontraception technique for um dealing with uh, fertility pathways yeah so immunocontraception is one of two technologies that i'm working on immunocontraception is essentially a little bit like a vaccine that you would mm. give to an animal um and it acts as a contraceptive so no okay. pregnancies the idea here is an immunocontraceptive specifically for feral cats okay. so we have a massive feral cat problem you may have yeah. seen them in the news recently yeah, yeah. um they are often touted as australia's worst invasive i'm not sure about that there's lots of bad ones but they are certainly uh, one of the driving forces behind extinctions here in the mainland they're also a vector for serious diseases as well that doesn't get talked about as much so cats are really challenging to manage and you know we sort of as when we're always thinking about managing animals we want to do it in the most humane way possible that's the goal and so a contraceptive that doesn't result in poisoning culling baiting all of these things is a wonderful option. So during my PhD, which I finished at the end of last year, uh, we are developing immunocontraceptives for feral cats that uses feline herpes, which is uh, completely restricted to cats interestingly enough. Yeah, and can you make sure that it doesn't uh, sort of enter our sort of domestic population or is that one of the things you have to consider as well? It's one of the big things we're considering, yeah. So when we think about the domestic cat population interacting with the feral cats, there are mm. certain ways to stop that happening. The first one is making sure that your cats are de-sexed anyway. Yeah. Um, and the other one that's a bit controversial still apparently is keeping your cats inside. Not controversial. Should not do controversial. It. Just Keep do your it, cats people. inside, please. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're losing yeah. um, billions of animals a year because of uh, domestic cats roaming. So yeah. it's, it's no joke. Uh, so that's one of the considerations. The biggest consideration for me personally as a research on this project is that while we don't have any native felines in Australia, we do have breeding programs of big cats in zoos. And feline herpes, while it doesn't go outside of felines, can impact other large big cats. So that's, for me personally, the biggest hurdle. So we've got a big project starting next year that will look at further restricting feline herpes to only domestic cats so even if it came in contact with breeding program at Zuzvik or Taronga or yep. what have you couldn't do anything tigers shake it off that's right <laughs> <laughs> so the feline herpes it sterilizes the animal correct and so if that is it transmit so it is transmissible then between species it can do a species jump no it can't jump species no sorry between different felines between cats between correct cats. yes yes and so it's a little bit like for the cats having mild cold they might cough or sneeze a little bit and that's how they'll spread it from one feral cat to another feral cat but the idea behind it is that they won't even know that they've got it yep. because when we were sort of shopping around I guess uh, for mm. what we might use as a vector for immunocontraceptive so a vector just referring to anything that gets you from point A to B in this case spreading a contraceptive uh, we asked a lot of vets about what they thought would be a good one something that doesn't have 
negative impacts on the animal. That was really important. Yeah. And feline herpes came up a lot because of this. They won't even know most of the time that they've got it. Yeah, it's fascinating. Ellen, you mentioned there was a second there pathway is. you were taking to deal with this as well. Yes. Yeah, so this second one is kind of the newer kid on the block, if you like. It's called gene drive. Uh, it's the similar outcome to immunocontraception, less pregnancies, less mm. animals, but it's a very different method. This involves uh, genes or bits of DNA that spread really, really quickly through a population and not at normal rates of inheritance. And so gene drives are actually naturally occurring. In fact, there's um, a really amazing project at University of Adelaide that's leveraging a naturally occurring mouse gene drive to spread infertility through female Hmm. mice. So we're looking at a similar project for cats, foxes, cane toads, carp, uh, rabbits, uh, smooth mute, which is like a little salamander that's just arrived in Melbourne. Uh, we're looking at deer, maybe pigs. We've got a bit of a long list at the moment. Wow, it's it's amazing stuff. And uh, you know, how fast will this sort of take effect? I think that's. I, I suppose I have this single generation sort of you know mm-hmm. bang, they're all gone. But mm-hmm. but that's only true if they're all infected at the same time. So how do you have you modelled how quickly you think, like for example, the first version will actually spread through that that. Um, so the cat population? We haven't been able to really model. You're talking about the immunocontraception. Yeah. Yeah, this is the feline herpes one. We haven't been able to really model that yet because we don't have um, information just yet about some of its stats. What stats? So how many animals can one mm. animal infect? That, yep. Those sorts of features. We don't have them yet. We've got a good idea, but we don't want to make assumptions. We need to test these things. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because just thinking about the thing, okay, well, first of all, they must interact with each other because they breed that's, that's right. your problem right yeah. so we know so tick, tick. <laughs> tick. Um, but maybe they're monogamous you know maybe, maybe yeah. in which case uh, you don't think I've, you're I've a seen dog cats person you, I know you you're a dog person you're just taking a dump those on those cats, cats are always having a fight imagine the feral ones <laughs> Uh, that's funny. And in terms of the, you know, you, you talked about the damage that, that it's doing. Uh, you know, we just we just spoke about the mountain pygmy mm. possum, which is obviously you know one. You know, any any small mammal, I think, is easy prey, right? They're fair game. Cats. That's yeah. right. Especially after bushfires, it's right. just a feeding frenzy. Uh, so any animals that a lot of these sort of small marsupials, um, lizards, insects that survive things like those you know the bushfires we had a few years ago the cats and foxes just move in uh, as soon as the fires are over and they just clean up it's it's awful so why do they have what's their advantage there is it just speed um there when a fire comes through it removes a lot of the habitat that they Mm. might be able to escape into and hide so that's cleared the animals are often suffering from things like smoke inhalation burns uh they haven't had a good meal they haven't had water they're just weakened and the cats and foxes are incredibly good at taking advantage of that question for you with regards to these invasive cats sure can we uh train our wonderful dingo population to take care of this better for us i am a huge supporter of getting dingoes back on country to manage animals like this but it's really challenging because i also really understand where especially graziers are coming from it's really impactful for them when there are dingo um, attacks the thing is as having worked with dingoes myself i can tell you they actually don't like going for sheep and whatnot because they're full of fat and dingoes haven't evolved with fat in their diet Um, they'll only go for it normally if mum and dad have been culled or shot and they've been raised without that influence to go for wallabies guanas things like that that's right and so so absolutely dingoes can have a top-down effect it's it's variable like it does you know it's not a one-size-fits-all but absolutely having our apex predator back you know in certain areas will help but yeah. it needs to be done uh, in a really considered way because i fully appreciate that there are you know implications of having dingoes around how often because i've spent a bit of time with dingoes yeah. there's, a, there's a dingo um uh, sort of reservation up um northwest of the city that's just amazing in Toolanvale. Um, yeah yeah that's and, where i work oh what yeah. oh, i was just there like a few months oh back. my goodness we can go there it's <laughs> absolutely time. wild i mean people if you haven't been there go and go and have a look because yeah. you get to you get to I'm just going to say, it, you get to cuddle dingoes, and they're the most placid. I mean, beautiful... cuddle, cuddle dingoes. Is yeah. that what we said? Okay, cool. What, what did you think I said? I thought it said cull. Oh, <laughs> God, like, no. Okay, just to be <laughs> no, clear. No, no. Yeah. no, you get to cuddle, cuddle dingoes. They're the most amazing they're creatures. Incredible. And, like, I, I always had this sort of lack of knowledge thinking they were kind of like small dogs. 
Nothing oh, not. like dogs. And I own Siberian Huskies, which oh, are probably the closest thing to dingoes in terms of dog-like behaviour because they have that same sort of real pack instinct they and they do. just love they love people. And, and what I was going to ask you then is how often do you think it is that in, in some of the cases where graziers are losing sheep and so mm. forth, that it's not actually dingoes, that it's these larger feral cats? That's a good question. Like, is that happening? Is there, you know? I don't want to speak for the grazers because you know, they're the ones that are sort of, you know, mm. head to, you know. Um, I, I think it's mixed. I think there's certainly cases where dingoes would be, yeah, culprits in some cases, but it's definitely not all the time. And one that I just learned recently was how big the losses are from feral pigs right. from sheep. Um, uh, that's a big uh, – I think it was in South Australia, I want to say. I'm not sure about that. But there was certainly um, hearing a lot about the impact of feral pigs and, um, yeah, like, yeah, losing heaps. And, and also um, because, you know, often we need lots of grazing land, exposure, dying from exposure, and then maybe yep. the carcasses get picked off yeah. and then it looks, looks like – Looks like it, yeah. Uh, it's hard to say. I don't want to speak yeah. too it's much. It's very for, complicated. Yeah, it's it? really yeah. complicated. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, let's get more – We got off track on More, more dingoes. <laughs> uh, yeah, because they're wild. They're amazing, uh, yeah. We're going to have to Literally. end. We're going to get you to stick around while, while we do our new segment, Ellen. It's, it's just such great stuff. I love, I love, uh, you know, I know Ewan's on our show, you know, Dr. Ewan Ritchie, yeah, and, you know, he's infested me so badly with dingo love over the yep. years. Yep. Um, rightfully so, because I think they've been, you know, really maligned as, as uh, a creature that, you know, has one sort of personality and they don't have that. And, no. you know, people just don't have a good understanding of, no. of what they're like as animals. Like they're Absolutely. completely different to what people um, expect. And I, I, I'm the same. When I started volunteering at this sanctuary, I sort of walked in, having had dogs my whole life, I walked right. in with a perspective. Yeah. And you know, I was told, you know, they look like dogs. They're not dogs. They're not dogs. Uh, they're not dogs. And it became very apparent very, very quickly how yeah. accurate that was. They are yeah. on another level. Their adaptions to this country yeah. are phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yeah. You would not believe some of the adaptions that yeah. they have. We're going to have to have a whole, yeah, whole show I know. about we this. We have to have a whole show. Uh, about this. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, we're going to take a break for some uh, important station announcements. Dr. Ellen Cottingham, we'll, we'll get you back. Talk Thank about you more so stuff. Much. Um, from the University of Melbourne, uh, dealing with some of our invasive species, which has been in the news uh, this last week, but I have to say I prefer the idea of immunocontraception to what I think some people are thinking about um, because we've got to do this in a way that's you know not that's right. cruel. That's right. um, it's easy for us to go out and say, oh, let's just cull them all, but shooting things from helicopters is not my idea of a good time. No, so, we, we need other options. Absolutely. Uh, some important station announcements, folks, and we'll be uh, back in just a moment. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, folks. And a huge thank you to Maddie Mack from Brunswick for uh, renewing to uh, Type GJ. Uh, uh, yes, and a uh, high fives to everyone. A wonderful program presenter, Banksy and Vanessa, and an integral integrals to the station. Thank you, Maddie. Appreciate that. And the Bandura Medical Center in Bandura has signed up as a business to radiotherapy. I don't think I've ever read out a medical centre subscription before. Thank you very much to the Bandura Medical Centre, whoever's there that just spent the Bandura Medical Centre's money on the subscription. Triple R, we love you very much. Uh, we're going to do some news. We kept Alan around because we figured there could be dingoes walking around the studio and we just want to be prepared. You never know. You never know. You never know. You never know. <laughs> Susie, it would be a bit wild, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do you got for us? Well, I thought I'm going to stick with the animal theme of today and I want to talk about jellyfish. So there's been a lot of stories about this in the news lately. I think a lot mm. of us tweeted about it. I'm still going to use this to the yeah. end of this platform. But yeah, so apparently jellyfish were able to learn from past experiences without having brains. And I think this is incredible. It's an incredible piece of news. Yeah, it's important because they live forever. Exactly. I mean, that and the fact that they don't need brains to like do things. To learn, yeah. <laughs> but like it's, it's actually really cool because... Um, it seems that, you know, what they found is that the root of learning and memory in these jellyfish comes from their eyes and the way they see contrast with like, you know, when they bump into things, the contrast of what they just bumped into, they can basically memorize this and then learn from that for the future and like pass this information down in their tentacles. I don't know. Um, and like <laughs> literally like deal with this. From a bundle of nerve cells. So, you know, yeah. we, we do that cognitively through our brain. So we have conscious, you know, pr programming mm. in our heads that tells us don't bump into this thing again. But they don't have that. They only have about a thousand nerve cells um, that like float around in their bodies, I guess. And, uh, and that's enough to do that. And like just in comparison, like a human has about a hundred billions of those. They've mm. got a thousand and that's enough to like tell them 
don't bump into the hurdle. And so, yeah, there's some researchers in um, Denmark and Germany, the northern part where there's water, just, you know, because jellyfish. <laughs> jellyfish, yep. And yeah, they, they looked at and trained um, Caribbean box jellyfish, so the dangerous one. Um, and yeah, and trained them to like spot and then dodge obstacles in their little tanks. And I just find this so cool because it's How like do you a train I a know, jellyfish. I know, oh, it's great. so cool. It's like a rat yeah. race in a in a box full of water. It's like it's so cool. Yeah. I think this is really amazing. Yeah. I, can you imagine having that job though? And you, I meet, know. you meet someone in the bar. What do you do? I train jellyfish. Yeah. <laughs> sure you do, pal. It's like a, yeah, a rat race for jellyfish. There you go. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Yeah. I, I think the more we learn about you know ocean creatures the more we realize we're not as unique as we thought we were no we're not we're yeah, totally it's not incredible i right? mean they also have 24 eye-like organs so you know if you think about that and you think that spiders are creepy you know <laughs> jellyfish yeah. are 24 i just jellyfish what bothers me is you know because i'm an optical physics guy right so it's the refractive index of these jellyfish yeah, that messes with cool. me because you can't see them half I the know. time in the water they're so close to the and then same... you go in and they sting you and it's really painful yeah, yeah you get a souvenir from the ocean here i, yeah. I, I got that i had times. grandparents <laughs> up in malua bay uh just short of bateman's bay and we were always getting warnings about you know blue bottle um, fish and jellyfish and you know keep away from them and, and thankfully never stung but um yeah good saw, for you yeah saw people who were getting stung yeah don't there, get yeah. stung by these ones they're actually really dangerous yeah. but yeah but I, I just thought that's a really cool piece of news that came yeah out. it's wild I know stuff. Mm. Dr Laura well, Shane, I saw a article that came out in the latest issue of Scientific American, and it was talking about the promise of artificial intelligence to decode animal language. Mm. So, how far off? We, how how obscenely out of the world is it that I could have a Google Translate? to know what my dog wants to eat. I mean, she kind of wants everything, but you know, I, it would be great to be able to exactly pinpoint yeah. that. And so it's naturally- It's like in the movie Up, right? Where they like have this collar that yeah. translates yeah, yeah, yeah. a dog. Well, actually, that's actually being developed, those collars to actually oh try to God. translate bark. But so where, where are we with machine learning? I mean, things have just gone astronomically out of the stratosphere to say chat GBT, you can probe with machine learning and these deep deep learning algorithms that I don't understand. You can really, you know, you can say, you know, compose this in the style of Mozart or you can, um, sorry, Shane's also just gesturing me. Am I, am I, I'm loud. I'm loud and no, I'm you're excited. Good. Am you're I good? good. Just, yeah. So um, you can generate language in different contexts. And so there are startups now. One is the Earth Species Project where there's two things that have happened which actually make it not far away where we could actually use AI to translate um, animal languages. And one is the fact that you can translate between languages via geometric shape. So you don't need to understand a language to overlap it. And this is what has made bots translate languages so mm. quickly now. So, so this is like discovery number one, that was 2017. And then in 2020, you can use processing tools now, machine learning processing tools where it doesn't have to be words. So it can be images which can also project into language. And of course, that's really important for animals because there's nonverbal communication. And so what the Earth Species Project is now doing is, is collating whole heaps of data. And we know that this is how, this is how you train a bot like ChatGPT. You just need eons and eons of data. And so now, you know, sensors and bioanalyzers, the, the data you can generate is so vast and this is all being fed in. Now this project in particular, this is um, species agnod agnostic. They're building machine learning tools. But then there are other programs and one's called SETI, which is a cetacean um, species initiative where they are translating the language of sperm whales. And that's really coming on eons because these sperm whales who kind of live in distinct social groups, they make clicking sounds. Mm. So then you actually do have something to pivot and try and translate the language on. And they're at a point now where they can certainly predict with 99% accuracy, what group those clicking sounds are come from are coming from. So there are distinct clicking sounds that will belong to specific. It's, it's like yeah, the, wow. the, the, the dolphin whales. dialects all over again, yeah, right? Yeah. That wow. was a great story too. <laughs> and so, you know, where are we now, and where is this going? I mean, something that is um, meant to be within commercial use within five years is predicting whether chickens are in stress. So there's been deep learning algorithms to predict whether um, chickens are in stressful conditions. So loads of data has been collected, especially when chickens are in stress, like the battery farms, for example. Yeah, yeah. And you can predict whether chickens are in distress now um, by the sounds that they make. And so that lots of machine learning yeah. again 
couldn't possibly understand it, um, you know, are predicting. And so farmers could now use this to, you know, say, yeah. you know, what's going on. And this could actually then move us forward to predict animal welfare. Yeah. It's a no, huge topic, right? Just for, for, animal, for animal studies yeah. as well and everything. Yeah. It's a huge controversial topic if animals can feel the stress and the pain of yeah. what is happening. Yeah. And everyone is always like, no, they don't. That's why it's fine. Yeah, it's easy for us to get away with that, yeah, isn't right? it? Yeah, uh, in uh, less concerning news, regards to animal welfare, but um, the Origin Spectral Interpretation Resource Identification and Security Regolith Explorer, otherwise known as Osiris Rex, you know, like that? Someone came up with mm-hmm. that. I mm-hmm. think it's really impressive. It's uh, run by NASA, uh, is going to be dropping off an asteroid sample to us in the next 24 hours. Did you know about this? No, no. So they sent this craft out to the asteroid uh, Bennu, which is, uh, you know, it's relatively close to Earth. It's not like out near Jupiter and Mars or anything. It's relatively close to Earth. Uh, took a sample a little while back, landed, you know, took a sample, and they had to sort of blow the sample up. They don't know exactly how much they've got. They've got some. They're hoping it's about 250 grams. So That's a decent amount. Yeah, I reckon that's a decent amount. It's kind of like, yeah. what, a quarter of a bar of butter. That's the way I think of it. But... Um, we you have know, a metric unit, is, but okay. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I gave you the metric unit and you look confused. Uh, Would never. So 250 grams, but you've got to think about this, right? This is from an asteroid. So this was in the solar system before the Earth was formed. So this is older than the Earth. It's kind I of wanted cool. to know how old it was. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. And, um, and the, the elements in it, right? That's yeah, like the chemistry. Yeah, what's in there, the chemistry that made up things. So the, the cool part is the Osiris-Rex spacecraft, though, is coming past Earth. It's not landing. It is going to drop this pellet off, which we will catch or, you know, collect. It's drop shipping at another level. Head back off to another asteroid to do some more work. Now, there's some real technical aspects of this because what you want is to make sure that this thing um, gets to us without being damaged. And one of the key components there, of course, is it has to re-enter our atmosphere at very high speed, as all things that come through our orbit, you know, deorbit do. And that means very high temperature. So they've got a heat shield and so forth to try and maintain the environment that these 250 grams of material um, experienced when it was back on the asteroid itself. Because otherwise, you know, if, you, if you superheat this thing, uh, it's game over. You've lost all the data that you would have had. So it should uh, should be back on Earth within the 20, next, I think it's the next 12, 18 hours, pretty soon. That's amazing. Yeah. So now, look, it's not the first one. Um, and if you if you want to go and check one out uh, for yourself, uh, the Japanese space agency JAXA, they actually um, uh, their Hayabusa two uh, craft brought back um, a fragment of rock that was about four point six billion years old from a different asteroid, and um, that's there's a piece of that actually in the um, science museum in the UK. Wow. Uh, it's pretty small. Really small. Came a long way. <laughs> <laughs> but you can go and have a look at it. And it's in this special little confined uh, little device. And it's all sealed and so forth to maintain, the again, the environment that it was mm. in when it was first uh, brought back. So we're starting to grab stuff and bring it yeah. back. Oxidation yeah. on this planet here is like going to be the end of this or if you're like not storing it completely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You've got to keep these things yeah. completely isolated. So it's cool stuff. Anyway, there you go. Super cool. I thought that would be exciting. Uh, a lot of exciting stuff there happening in space. So... Dr. Laura, good to see you. Great to see you, Dr. Shane. Good to have you in, Susie. Dr. Always a Susie. pleasure. We've had Liv doing our Twitter feed. Thank you, Liv. And Ellen, we're going to come and see those dingoes. Yeah, absolutely. It's happening. I've seen yes. them once before. I want to go back. Yes. I want the behind-the-scenes special guided <laughs> tour. And Stanagogo special. Yeah. I coming it, up. I just, I want to, and you've got to tell me when there's puppies. Are they there now, at the moment. <gasps> oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is coming up. <laughs> Next <laughs> Sunday. <laughs> yeah, let's we're, move we're show. We're I doing it. We're doing it. there, we are about four or five months old right now so oh they're very cute. funny and way too clever like oh they, de- so they develop oh so God. quickly much cool. faster than regular dog we're puppies. going we're going yeah. we're going to hand over to the team from eat it have a great sunday everyone remember science is everywhere and we'll chat to you next week hi this is dr shane thanks for listening to the podcast of triple r's einstein agogo a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world broadcast live on triple r from melbourne australia every sunday Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.